We'd like to thank LawPay for their support of this show. LawPay's online payment solution was developed specifically for lawyers to correctly separate earned and unearned fees so you can accept credit cards in compliance with ABA and IOLTA guidelines. A proud member benefit of the State Bar of Texas, LawPay is trusted by more than 50,000 lawyers and integrated with more than 30 practice management solutions. Schedule a demo today at lawpay.com forward slash Texas demo. Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. So good to have you with us. Let me ask you something. Do you do a lot of writing in your work? Legal writing, perhaps? Are you pretty good at it? Could you maybe use a few tips? Well, have I got a great guest for you today, Professor Wayne Sheese. Well, he writes. He writes a lot. I mean, a lot. He writes a monthly column on legal writing for Austin Lawyer Magazine. He's written five books, including his latest book called Legal Writing Nerd, B1. And luckily, he's generous with his gifts. You see, Wayne teaches legal writing at the University of Texas School of Law. So, Wayne Sheese, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Wayne, great to have you on here. You know, you really are a nerd, like like a real-life one. I I was reading up on your bio. You went from being a bankruptcy lawyer to being a legal writer. So it's like one kind of nerdship on the lily pad to another one. What's What made you go from being a bankruptcy lawyer to a legal writer? Well, I did enjoy bankruptcy practice, but I wasn't quite as happy in the practice of law generally as I thought I was going to be. And I actually undertook a series of self-assessment exercises that I found in a book. And through completing those exercises, I changed career paths. So even the transition from bankruptcy to legal writing, that transition itself was nerdy. Like, I'm, I'm seeing this whole nerd theme in your life, Wayne. Yes, it's probably true. You know, the exercises were a series of questions that you answer. Yeah. So that's taking a test, right? That's nerdy. Right, of course. Of course. And I had to I had to write little essays. They it would say think about a, a moment in your past or an experience where you were you felt very good, write that down. Then you had to share these essays with others to get their feedback on what they thought you should be doing with your life. It was a very nerdy process. Now, because you have this this underlying you had this underlying writer in you, presumably even back then. Did you go back and revise your essays and like reread them and proofread them before you shared them with others, or did you just take them as is and and let people read what you had? You know, it's funny you ask that because one of the people that I decided <laughs> to send my essays to was my mother, and needless to say, my mother was an English teacher. Oh boy! So the answer to your question is yes. Particularly when I decided to send them to my mom, I went back through them for <laughs> revising and editing. Well, if, and if she was an English teacher, then I assume she revised and edited them for you as well. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. I'm. I'm. I'm trying to picture the dinner table conversations when you're with your mother. This is. This may be a whole other podcast, Wayne. We'll have to have your mom back, and we can have the two of you talk about about grammar and diction. This is. I think we've. Guys, you heard it here first with Wayne Sheese. We figured this out, and I'm actually starting to think, Wayne, that. The story you're telling, I don't know if I believe all of it. I think 
maybe this is not your actual shtick and maybe it's like an elaborate cover story because you're like a secret spy or something and this is the cia just wants to make you sound really nerdy so nobody suspects you maybe so yeah okay so he's he's refusing to answer i'm gonna I'm going to take that as an objection, objection, non-responsive. So let's get serious for a second, because, you know, you're touching on something that this topic, legal writing, that some lawyers think they're really good at it. Some lawyers are really good at it. And others of them just don't enjoy it and don't really want to improve. Why do you think legal writing is so important to what we do as lawyers? I often say that lawyers, many law students don't realize it, but lawyers are professional writers. And I do think that I I wish somebody had made that a little more clear to me, because once I finished law school and landed in in a law office, I was doing so much writing. And I think every, almost every lawyer realizes that, right? You're doing so much writing. Sure. And because you're doing so much and because you're getting paid for it, I think you're a professional writer. There's two other little pieces that I usually throw in. So number one, you're getting paid. Number two, you're getting paid. Um, <laughs> subject, <laughs> right, right? Somebody's paying you to to write that. Of course. Right. And number two, it's usually about something that's complex and and tricky. And number three, there's a lot on the line. It could be mostly money, but if you're writing in a criminal context, right, liberty and life freedom. could be on Absolutely. the line. So for those reasons. I think that's why it's it's so important. Do you think over time, you've been teaching legal writing for, I think, what is it now, 27, 28 years? It's, it's been a minute, right? 27 years. 27 years. Well, congratulations. So as you look back and, and you kind of start from the beginning of your legal writing professorship and you go to today, do you think that we're, as a profession, putting less emphasis on legal writing in law schools? Do you think the quality of legal writing has kind of stayed the same? Has it gone down? Has it improved? What's your kind of professor's eye view of this? There's really two questions there. One is, does the way law schools approach legal writing, has it changed? And the answer to that is 100% yes. And it's almost perfectly coincided with my career. And the second question is, do I think writing is getting better? But, and I can tell you what I think in a minute, but back to the first one, you know, at many American law schools, there was no legal writing instruction until the 1970s and 1980s. There literally was no instruction. Wow. So you would take contracts, but you'd never learn how to write a contract. You'd take civil procedure, but never learn how to write a memo or or a pleading. That was all supposed to be picked up as an apprentice in the real world through mentorship, I guess. Right. Absolutely. Right. And and who who knows? I I would be speculating, but you know, money making and commercial law firms started to say we don't want to have to mentor these people. Teach them how to write before they get here. I don't know, but legal writing instruction began and and it began primarily with teaching assistants and adjuncts. And by the time I arrived, that was slowly being transformed into full-time professional instructors. And and today, you know, we have a full staff of very talented full-time legal writing faculty. So it really has, the way law schools provide the instruction has changed tremendously in the last 27 years. But it's interesting because if you talk to a lot of say, more senior practicing lawyers, they they feel like the overall quality of legal writing has gone down, you know, either with, with fresh graduates or even people that have been practicing for a while. Do you share that view? Or do you think maybe they're just, their perspective may be a bit tainted? I tend to, you know, I, I don't want to make myself unpopular, but I do <laughs> tend to be a little skeptical 
when the older generation tells the younger generation, right, you, you can't do it like we used to do it. Right. So I do have some perspective, which is that the caliber of my students' writing abilities has either stayed the same or ticked up ever so slightly in 27 years. I'm not going to say they're getting so great, but I haven't seen a decline. Now, I'm fortunate to be at a top law school, and I have a very high caliber of student. But sure. So I sometimes find myself wondering, are we old people feeling obsolete, and we therefore need to say, well, the young people these days, they just don't write well anymore. I don't know. I will say this, Rocky. I one time got a little uh, stirred up on the topic, and I went and did some research on it. And I was able to find quotations from senior lawyers criticizing the writing of younger lawyers dating back to 1921. Oh, that's interesting. So it's a it's a common theme that the younger people coming into practice today don't write as well as we did when I came into practice, for example. I, I'm a little skeptical of the claim. That does as, not mean there is not room for improvement, of course. Sure, sure. Well, if, if there wasn't, then they wouldn't need legal writing professors, right? So you, <laughs> there's, there's, I'd be out of a job. Absolutely. There's always room for improvement. So let's talk for a second then about the profession as a whole. And you were going to give us your assessment of whether... As lawyers, as a legal profession, is our writing getting better or staying the same, or is it getting worse over time? I don't read as much current writing by lawyers as I do student writing, but I do read some, and my assessment is the same. There has been a push in the United States that we would call the plain English movement, and you know, it's spotty, it's a stop and start, but it has made a difference in some small ways. And then I do believe that the improved instruction in U.S. law schools has helped. And so I wouldn't say it's in decline. I'm not prepared to say that we're dramatically improving the writing ability among practicing lawyers. But I would say it's ever so gradually increasing or at least staying the same. So then let's kind of talk for a second about what we as lawyers need to accomplish when we write. I think I read this in your book where, in the latest one, Legal Writing Nerd, where you said you know, as lawyers, we need to write for lawyers. We are ultimately doing legal writing, and it is a type of writing. But then you get others who say, well, it needs to be in plain English and needs to be understood. And I have a feeling there may be some lawyers who get confused by that. They say, am I doing legal writing or am I writing for a non-legal audience that can understand me? How would you approach that question? I definitely agree with you that there is some confusion on the topic and and very much because this is just my opinion that we often fail to distinguish between the two very different audiences for some legal texts many legal texts let's say a brief written for an appellate court sure the only people who are ever going to read that are lawyers the clerks the opposing counsel the judge i suppose your non-lawyer client might read the brief you wrote on that client's behalf but that isn't even always true because let's say you're closing a $150 million contract. The opposing party is represented by lawyers. So, and again, legal writing for other lawyers. So a lot of what we do is writing for other lawyers in which I think we can assume they understand the terms of art. They understand the insider jargon we're using. They're used to reading this kind of content. Or they'll Google it. (laughs) Or they'll Google it, or they'll assign a junior attorney to go look it up. But there are types of writing intended for the general public and for consumers. You know, 99% of the things you click on when you agree to something online 
they should know that those are read by ordinary humans without JD law degrees. And mm. that kind of stuff ought to be. So I, I don't say all legal writing has to be plain English. I say if you know the primary audience is non-lawyers or just ordinary consumers, that ought to be in plain English. If you know your primary audience is somebody with a JD, that doesn't mean you can't improve it or write it more plainly than you you are currently are, but it's not the same as writing it at a seventh grade level for the general public. That's my view. So would it be fair to say that that your view would be as follows, that there's no such thing as the perfect writing style. It all depends on who your audience is and what your goal is. Is that a fair statement? Yes. And if you don't mind a shameless plug, <laughs> a book I wrote was called Writing for the Legal Audience. Mm. And each chapter poses that you're writing for a different type of audience and what should you do when you're writing for that audience. Absolutely. Know your audience is fundamental to all writing. And lawyers tend to be busy. We tend to default to a certain approach over and over. Uh, that's normal, and I, I do it. But often, if you are able to sort of pause and think, who am I writing to, and what are their expectations, and what do they already know and not know, uh, that'll, that'll inform the writing. So I, I'm going sh- to share with you a little a, a challenge that I've faced. You know, so when I'm not podcasting, my colleagues and I, we, we write legal briefs for other lawyers. And one of the challenges we face is that, you know, we take the feedback from the leaders in legal writing, the guys like you who say, you know, here's, here's some new tips and here's some new, some new things we can use and new paradigms. And then when we try that out on briefs that we're writing for clients, the clients, not always, but they will sometimes push back. And say, you know, no, I much prefer having the wherefores and the premises considered and all those all those things that we kind of take as as old and outdated, they'll still want those in there. Or better yet, they'll say, this judge will want that in there. How would you kind of navigate that tight wire? You know, it's it's very tricky. And I don't have a simple solution. First of all, there is a fairly decent body of literature from not a widespread group of judges, but from enough judges that suggests, no, I don't really like the wherefore premises considered. I don't need any more here and hereby's and thereby's. So judges do tend to talk the talk of write plainly for me, write so I can understand it and abandon this archaic legalese. So to the extent clients and lawyers say, well, the judge wants it that way, you can't completely discount that. But you can, you know, and I do read what judges say about legal writing. They tend to say, write it plainly so I can understand it and without all the legalese. But then you, you pose the second question. What about the client who is reassured by the sort of formal, traditional sound and look of those things? Gosh, that's a tough one because I think you should try to meet client expectations when you can. Absolutely. On the other hand, part of what they're paying you for is your expertise. <laughs> if you're, and, and if your expertise says in this court, we'll be better off if we avoid those archaic flourishes. And I hope the client would respect that. You use the term archaic flourishes, and I kind of, I I like that. I've not heard that, but I I like that term, and I think it's very descriptive. Talking about archaic flourishes and how to address them, I took a CLE from you back in 2001. You probably wouldn't remember me, but, you know, (laughs) it was around the turn of the century, as it were. It's, It's scary that we can say that now. But when I took this, one of the things that I took away from that 
CLE, and I still use it to this day when a client will allow me to use it. It's called the bold synopsis. Can you tell us about the bold synopsis? Are you, you are kidding me. I am not kidding you. That I is love fantastic to hear, Rocky, and thank you for saying <laughs> it. It is an idea that I sort of came up with when I began to encounter the boilerplate comes now opener that is very common in Texas, uh, especially state court pleadings, right? Comes now Absolutely. the, the defendant by and through counsel of record and filed its, its motion for summary judgment and would respectfully show unto the court as follows. And sometimes it would respectfully show unto the honorable court as follows. Right, right. I wondered, given that judges tend to be busy, that you're not always certain they read your pleading or your filing before you showed up for the hearing anyway, whether that wasn't just a waste of a valuable space, given it's the opening paragraph. And so I right propose that yeah. you write a very short one-page summary of the key, what, what do I want and why should I get it, essentially, and then put it in boldface type to make it stand out. Well, I've talked about that at CLE over the years, and needless to say, I will receive some pushback. I've had a handful of conversations. You know, I will wrap up my remarks and exit the room um, and there I will encounter a couple of uh, lawyers who want to tell me why they want to use the comes now opener. And most of the time, it connects back to what you asked earlier. Most of the time they say, I'm worried that if I don't have the comes now opener, the judge at such and such a county court will look at it and say, well, this lawyer doesn't know what he's doing because he didn't open with the comes now. And my response is, you got to put the comes now if you think you're, the judge is going to look funny at you because you didn't have it. I wonder if we're not exaggerating how many judges are really doing that. But back to my earlier reaction, Rocky, I have had maybe you are probably the third. If It's possible you might be the fourth lawyer to tell me that he has tried the bold synopsis. So it hasn't caught on <laughs> widely, but thank you for... <laughs> for your efforts. Well, and no, absolutely. And, and, and thank you for introducing me to the bold synopsis. You know, I, I, I love it when, when I'm allowed to use it. And what I recall, at least from 2001, was that it wasn't a full page. It was like a paragraph, like four sentences. And it was set off, you know, like it would look like a block quotation. It's single spaced and it's, it's kind of indented on both sides. So it stands out. And you basically say, the defendant is moving for summary judgment. Here's why. And it's three to four, at most five sentences, and it just really relays it and tells the story in pithy fashion. And it forces you as the writer to actually understand what you're asking for and why. What's the gravamen of your argument? So I, I, I enjoyed that part of it. But the fact that it hasn't caught on, that's why I asked you the question earlier, that how do we as a profession move, move forward in our writing if we're not willing to even try things like the bold synopsis? What's your your answer to that? Well, you know, one of the jokes I sometimes make is, well, we just have to wait for a bunch of older lawyers to die. <laughs> that's, that's not practical. That's just not. Nobody can take that seriously. But I will, I will say, I had hopes, right? You can obviously tell my hopes were that it would catch on and it would become the norm. And that's an unrealistic dream. What I've settled into is, look, it's enough to make small improvements gradually because over time and over a long time, things will improve. So that's the approach I've had to take. I've had to stop 
you know, believing that I could make a big difference in all trial court pleadings filed in the state, which was never going to happen anyway, and start to hope I can make a difference in a few pleadings written by a few lawyers and that it would catch on. You know, if you don't mind my jumping to something you said, Rocky, the idea of it was partly that in a busy trial docket, the judge may have not read the the motion in the first place. And maybe it's open on a screen or a folder on the bench and the judge glances down, that bold synopsis should stand out and can give the judge a quick summary of what you want and why you should get it. You also said you can't write an effective one until you really understand your own case. And that is just so true. You, it's, you don't write it first, even though it's at the top of the pleading, you don't write it first. You, you make sure you have a, a well-written uh, trial brief and or motion and then once you're really zeroed in on what you want and why you should get it, then you go write your bold synopsis. And, and I think it's, it's a reader benefit and a writer benefit. Well, and let's talk for a second about the process of, of understanding what you're going to write. In Legal Writing Nerd, you invoke Robert Caro. He is absolutely a great writer. I've, I've read a couple of his books. But tell us who Robert Caro is and what you learned from him. You know, he wrote a series of biographical books about Lyndon Baines Johnson. Right. And they were lengthy, but engaging. And at one point, Texas Monthly Magazine, some a magazine profiled him and interviewed him about the process of completing these books. And as I read that, what I realized was, this isn't just a narrative of an author's approach to writing there's a process here. He developed a process for how he would go from the core ideas, incorporate the research, build a rough draft, and so on. In that chapter of Legal Writing Nerd where I talked about it, I think I boiled his steps down to a process that, you know, a practicing lawyer could use on a demanding or sophisticated or lengthy document. You know, it's, it's a little involved, but it would certainly produce a quality piece of writing, if you ask me. And when I read, it was like 10 steps, I think, that you had in there. And what I remember thinking when I read that was, what happens when you're in a rush? I mean, so much, especially in, in trial practice, so much of what we would write is not being done over a series of weeks. It's being done, you know, maybe with a five-hour window in which you have to write a brief, or maybe you have a day. But these are done very quickly, very you know, truncated time crunches. How do you write in a rush like that? Yeah, this is another reason that legal writing is so hard, is that it is often done under harsh deadlines in which a lot of complex material has to be produced fairly quickly. And not only that, you've got three or four other projects, right, all at the same time. Or in some cases, 60 or 70. You know, it depends on the, yeah. depends on the type of law practice, right? So. Right. You know, that's another reason that if legal writing is improving at all, it is ever so gradual. I have just a couple of suggestions. One, first of all, we all know that a lot of legal writing can be template bound or form bound, right? You're, you're writing sure. a, a, the same kind of document in the same kind of situation, and maybe you started with a template. That's both bad and good, right? If it's a great template that you've worked on and revised until it's really effective, that's great. If it's not, then the same things that were hamstringing the The original document are going to hamstring yours. So one would be develop good templates or forms that you, if you do use them, that you consistently go to. A second would be that you can't go through the Robert Caro 10-step process on every piece of writing. You've got to boil it down to maybe two or three steps 
and say, at a minimum, I'm going to do this level of edit on anything that I send out with my name on it. You know, you have to cut corners somewhere. Here's another thing that I think sometimes helps, at least it helps me. I sort of subscribe to this idea of having a high writing IQ, right? Learn stuff about writing, uh, read stuff about writing. Maybe once in a while go to a CLE about writing as a way to improve that first draft. Nobody produces perfect work on the first draft. We all know we need editing. All I'm saying is the more you know and the more educated you are about good techniques, maybe the first draft is a little better, requires less editing time, gets filed a little more quickly, or meets the deadline a little more easily. So those are my suggestions. So in essence, practice makes at least closer to perfection, if not absolutely perfect. So go ahead. Especially if you combine practice with a little additional learning, right? Mm-hmm. Practice, learn, practice, learn. That's a good cycle. Well, I guess I guess that's why in your book you say it's it's so important for us to always be trying to improve. You have to keep learning about legal writing. It's not something you just learn once and say, all right, I know it. So I guess that ties back to what you're saying here. You have to keep practicing and learning and practicing and learning. So I maybe a couple more questions for you here that I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on. Are there hallmarks of great legal writing? You know, things that we can see consistently that make really, really good legal writing, or is that kind of undefined still? Let's see. You know, since there are so many genres within legal writing, let's talk about persuasive analytical writing. I would say a hallmark, these are my opinions, right? You may not agree, but a hallmark for me is obvious transitions and connections, right? At every time I start a new paragraph, it's very easy for me to see how this relates to what was said in the previous paragraph. And then when I read the next sentence, it's easy for me to make a connection between the previous sentence and this sentence. So most of us do those things moderately well, but I certainly think we could all improve our ability to make smooth uh, transitions quickly so that the document doesn't read like a series of disconnected you know, ideas. It's connected. So I'm, I'm big on transitions. I'm big on flow and orderly organization that leads the reader through. So I think that's one, one hallmark of it. You know, is this a hallmark, Rocky? The absence of grammatical and mechanical errors? One would hope that's a baseline, but you never know. <laughs> One would hope. You know, if you file a 60-page brief, there's bound to be a glitch sure. or two. But sure. if you allow it to go out with 12, you know, errors or... So those are two, the absence of mechanical errors and smooth transitions and flow. Those are two good, good hallmarks. What about the don't column? What are the cardinal sins of legal writing that maybe lawyers make, but they don't realize they're making them? I would say that we need to be more sensitive to layout and format than we have been. And it's, it's really starting to happen, but we haven't been as sensitive to it as we should have. And so we still have government agencies mostly, but even some private lawyers filing documents in courier, uh, using, emphasizing text in all capitals. You know, all of the point headings in a brief are in all capitals text. Uh, so that's one thing. I think we could improve the way our documents are laid out and formatted, and maybe court rules and, and local rules need to push us in that direction. I would say, oh, I'm a fan of the short paragraph. Uh, a lot of legal writing I read has these long paragraphs, and I feel mm-hmm. like you're, you're just bogging your reader down. Another one, for me anyway, is abstraction. Right? We're smart. We're lawyers. We tend to think conceptually, so let's write about concepts when often it's more persuasive and forceful and engaging to write about actions and things that happen rather than concepts or abstractions. 
that's another hallmark right there. The writing is concrete whenever it can be and abstract only when it needs to be. You're talking about real people, real actions, real things happening. That's much more engaging than abstractions. Uh, but, you know, by the way, you have to write about abstractions if you're going to be doing legal writing. I'm not saying you, you don't, but to the extent you can be concrete and specific, I think it is uh, more engaging. Well, Wayne, I could talk about this all day. This is a fascinating topic. It's, you know, it's, legal writing sounds so dry, but it is actually, it's it's got a lot of little intricacies to it that are just, just so, so interesting. So I, I appreciate you sharing your insights with us. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, if they got a legal writing question or... You know, they want to get a hold of your book or whatever. What's the best way to get a hold of you? I have a website called legalwriting.net. Legal writing is just one word. Sure. And if you go there, you'll see some references, some links to my blog, to my book, to other things. If you were to just Google legal writing in Wayne or legal writing in Wayne Sheath, you'd find my blog and my website there too. And I welcome questions. I absolutely love to get questions from practicing lawyers who deal with the real world challenges of legal writing. I don't believe I'm living in an ivory tower here in academia, but it can be a little isolating to read student writing repeatedly. And I love it when practitioners give me ideas. I get ideas for columns from practitioners occasionally. I always take their recommendations and write a column. (laughs) So if a lawyer says, I have this question or concern, and I think you should write a column about it, I almost always do. Well, you know, I, I I hope there's at least somebody out there who listens and is inspired to maybe come see you down at UT Law School. You know, this year's state biannual meeting is going to be in Austin. And so that'd be a great chance to come meet some other lawyers and stop in and talk to Wayne. But Wayne, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and for, and if I may say, for sharing your eminent nerdiness with us. This was... <laughs> thank you. Happy to do it. Great. Thank you. Well, that is all the time we have for today. I want to thank my guest, Wayne Sheets, for joining us. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of LawPay. So thank you, LawPay. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.